Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Today's episode is brought to you by The Heroine's Knot, an online community for creative creatures on the quest for self-expression and collective renewal. In this group, we untangle the knots of our contemporary creative lives, connect to the greater web, and weave new stories. Part healing space, part writing and creative community, part innovation incubator, part training ground for heroines seeking practical and magical solutions to the individual and collective dilemmas that shape our modern world. In The Heroine's Knot, we call on mythology, archetypal wisdom, and our relationship with nature. We root into something wild and timeless, even as we design something new and necessary that will guide our next evolutionary steps. Learn more about the Heroines Not community over on my website, marisagowdy.com, or check the show notes for the link. Episode 4 of Season 2, Launching Ships, a story of Helen of Troy, brought to us by Maura McMahon. This is the third episode in what has become a trilogy of Hudson Valley voices. In episode two, you met Elizabeth Cunningham and her Celtic Magdalene, Maeve. And in episode three, we sat down with Sophie Strand, who told us the story of Tristan and Isolde. Next week, in episode five, you'll meet Jen Murphy, a storyteller and feminine embodiment coach from Ireland, who brings us the stories of the Celtic goddess Anya. And in the rest of the season to come, you'll hear more of my stories, inspired by Celtic mythology and Irish folklore. My guests will be from America, from Canada, from Ireland, and around the world. Thank you again for being a Knotwork listener. And now, episode four. Our guest and storyteller is Maura McMahon. Maura is a storyteller and spoken word poet whose collection of Irish tales, pirate adventures, and women's sovereignty songs have entranced and empowered audiences across regional venues in New York's Hudson Valley for over 15 years. Her deeply engaging performative style is imbued with the Celtic spirit. As a character performer, Maura has embodied Grace O'Malley and the Grey Sea Hag, as well as Hippolyta, the Amazonian queen. My family most loves seeing Mora when she appears as Mrs. Claus of the Hudson Valley. I am so excited to have Mora McMahon here for a second appearance on the Knotwork Storytelling Podcast. Mora was here with us in season one to share the story of Mora Rua McMahon and a story that's very dear and close to her because, of course, she and her heroine share a name. And this time, Maura's going to bring us a story of a heroine who's known the whole world over. Maura, who will you share with us today? Thank you so much for having me back to not work. I am so thrilled to be back and talk to you today about the series of stories that I strung together in the last six months for a show that I titled Launching Ships, which was a collection of stories about Helen of Troy 
famous, famous Greek woman, myth with a capital M. Who do I think I am? I just spent some time with a goddess and wanted to share it. So you're going to share with us a clip from the show itself, which is going to be such a treat. I was lucky enough to be there live in the audience when you performed. But before we dive into that, will you give us sort of the cliff notes of Helen? Because she's one of those, everybody knows her and her famous face, but there's Troy, there's Paris, there's Menelaus, there's these different characters. And I think that sometimes the details get lost in the wash. And I love for us to be anchored into our main characters, into our main settings, into why this story mattered so much. Yeah. Helen's story is so famous. And when I first came upon it, I didn't even really remember much more than the launching of the ship. But from her conception, she was famously born by hatching out of an egg because her mother, Lita, told a very amazing, impassioned tale about having been enraptured by Zeus. Not only was it Zeus, of course, of Mount Olympus, the father of the gods, but he took the form of a swan, the most beautiful and graceful creature that anyone could imagine. And so a divine swan was the only way that she could explain having had such a beautiful daughter and such a beautiful face. And really, I think she was just trying to explain the fact that this child looked nothing like the king of Sparta, who was supposed to be the father. And so Lita was the first one who taught Helen about the power of a story well told. And so Helen has an awareness in my imagination of being a storyteller during her life. So the show of Launching Ships was one hour start to finish, starting with that conception story and going all the way through to the end of her life on the Isle of Rhodes. The piece that I'm going to share with you is really towards the end of the Trojan War. So my cliff notes on that are she was born of the king and queen of Sparta. She was their daughter, a princess, and there was a tournament for her hand. So she has to marry the victor of the tournament, who is Menelaus. He really is king of Sparta because he's married to her. So later on, after she gives birth to an heir, she runs off to Troy with Paris, who's the prince of Troy. And everything in her life was who spun the story, how? And so Menelaus spins the story that she was abducted and raped and being held against her will in Troy. And so he needs to raise the army and raise a navy and launch a thousand ships to go save her. The Trojans say that she fell madly in love with Paris and Aphrodite herself was part of the two of them getting together. She was famous for having said she wished she had her maidenhood still with her so she could offer that to Paris, which does not sound so much like rape. There's a lot of consent built into that. And so she's in Troy. And when the ships arrive, hearing that she had a face that launched a thousand ships without knowing that part of the story almost sounds like an honor. You know, oh, wasn't she honored day if we if she launched these ships? No. I mean, in my reckoning of it, in my telling of the story, she is there in the tower watching these ships roll across the horizon pissed off at her ex-husband who is telling lies to the people that she loves, her brothers and her friends and sending them out to war. And how many are going to die today because of this lie? And she's kind of pissed off mad at him. It was the largest war of the ancient world that was recorded. 
And it went on for 10 years outside the, the gates of Troy and all the Trojans are, are held within this walled city. And so where our clip is picking up is the night that the Trojan horse was let through the gates. So what happened was right before this, all the Spartans pack up their stuff, get back on their ships and flee. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, did we just win the war? All the Trojans are like, they're gone. They're, they're finally gone. All that's left behind is this wooden horse. And so of course they famously let the horse into the city and there's, there's warriors in there that creep out in the middle of the night and burn the city down. That's not the story I tell, but that's the historical reference to it. And so where we're going to pick up this clip is that night. And in the launching ship show, about two thirds of the stories I tell come from canon myth and another third are my own device and my own storytelling. There's a little bit of both in this clip. So it's my pleasure to share this with you. city, beautiful and strange. I was a curiosity. Maybe I was a gift from the gods. No one was really sure. There were deliberations. There were arguments made for and against. But they made the decision to open the gates and let me in, even though I was Spartan made. Now the whole fucking city's burning because of it. That fire is untethered like my passion. The temples, the homes, the market. We were desperate. So maybe the horse was a gift from the gods. See, when you're desperate, you look for divinity in everything. The blood, sweat, and tears of the men within me. Not just the ones between my thighs. Don't listen. It's the ones I held in my heart. I knew all of them. And they were so honorable, all of them, for me. So it'll all burn and be over. But they need to be remembered properly. And so do I. If I have anything to do with it, we will be. It'll be a legacy. Achilles and Hector, I carry you both with me. And together, we will become immortal.
Troy burned. Troy burned to the ground, but it was over. It was over. It was over. And when the men, women, and children who were left in Troy were paraded out, spoils of the war to the victors, Helen was not in their number. And some people were kind of pissed about that. There was a lot of stories about what happened to Helen after the war. One story is that Menelaus found her that night in Troy, that he put her back on a ship and they both sailed back to Sparta together. So if you've been on the live stream this long and you're looking for a happy ending, this is the time that you can log off. <laughs> I don't buy it. There's all different versions of the truth and we sort of fill in the edges sometimes, don't we, with the things that suit our purpose? There was another story that Menelaus found her, but that she disarmed him and that it drove him mad and he lost himself at sea never to return. There was another story that Helen was never there at all, that people saw a likeness of her, like a hologram, like a statue of her, and just presumed it was her, but that she rode the whole war out in Egypt. I happen to think that all of those stories have a little bit of truth in it. Myth tends to do that. And so when I had my conversations with Helen, this is what she shared with me about her escape from Troy and the man she met along the way who changed everything. For those who say that I defected to the Spartans, they're not wrong. For those who say that I held fast with the Trojans and never let them down, well, they're not wrong either. Everyone who saw me during my escape saw in me what they needed to and told their stories as true as they could. But I saw Menelaus that night running in rage through the city as it burned, ashes down all around us. He was set on taking my life with his own hands. I could see it in his face as he moved towards me, finally there with me, just the two of us, with no walls of the city between us and no armies between us, just him standing in front of me and I, standing in front of him, vulnerable, defenseless. I was as naked in front of him as I could have been. And I leaned into that. I dropped my robes. You see, 
If I had kept my robes on, all he would have seen was my face. My famous stupid fucking face. All the spiteful things that I'd ever said to him that came out of my face. All the envy of my other suitors that would look upon my face. He would remember all of the radical things people did because of my face. But my body, in all its glory, that's something else entirely. It had been given to him. He knew what it tasted like. His child came from my body. Now, some say, and when he saw my body there, he remembered that he loved me. He remembered the sanctuary he found within me. Some say, seeing me there in all my glory made him remember that Zeus was my father and that I might be immortal. No one was really sure and trying to take my life could have some major consequences. Well, either way, seeing my body that night with the city burning around it, naked, knowing that was all I had left, disarmed him utterly. He fell to his knees and he dropped his sword. And whether it was because he loved me or he feared me, he bowed his head to all of it. Listen, I took that minute and I got the hell out of there. <laughs> I know how to get out of the city. I've run away with two boyfriends before this. I could escape, you know? So I disguised myself. I know what you're thinking. You're like, but Helen, your face, don't worry. I took ashes from the burning temple and I like smashed it all around my face so you couldn't see it was me. And I, I do this, okay. I grabbed a big sack of Priam's gold and I took a bolt down to the dock. Okay, can you see me? There we go. Thankfully, there was a captain on the ship. The whole city's burning and there's a captain sitting on this ship right at the dock. And I said, sir, sir, I need safe passage immediately to Egypt. I'm a widow of the war which was 50% true because Paris had died. Please, sir. I thought it would take some convincing, but to my astonishment, he goes, yes, my lady, please come aboard. We'll leave right away. Okay. That seemed a little bit easier, but I was all for it. So I got on the ship. They gave me a cabin, which was lovely, and they gave me some food, and nobody had food to eat back then. For the first three days, the journey was so smooth and easy. I could smell the fresh sea air. Oh, I had been trapped in Troy for 10 years to smell the sea. It was too much for me to hold back. I had to go up on deck. I waited until the night. It was a full moon that night. I'd become so comfortable and started to feel so free. I let my guard down. And I just let the moon shine upon me. And that's when I heard a voice behind me say, my queen, my queen, my goddess, I serve you. Shit. <laughs>
And it was the captain of the boat down on his knees. I was found out. I said, sir, when did you know? And he said, my queen, the very first time my eyes fell upon your beautiful, perfect face. That was the face that launched a thousand ships. He was the guy. He was the one who said it. It didn't happen later on. This was the guy who said it. And he should know. He was there. He said, I was there when we built the fleet and we all came to find you. I left the safety of my home 10 years ago. When we heard you were abducted, my life changed that day and had a new purpose, and my purpose was to save you. The goddess must have looked down on me that I was there at the dock when you needed me the most. When you showed up, I realized I was the one Spartan that would have the honor of saving you from your captors. Every day of my life, I will walk with dignity on my shoulders and honor to have been the one. I wanted to reach down and pull that man up on his feet by his shoulders and shake him and say, there is no one here to save. You were sold a pack of lies by a king who felt threatened and an ex-husband who was pissed off at the woman who left him. There was no reason for you to go to war and leave your family, but that is not what this man needed to hear. The last thing this captain needed to hear was a lecture on my sovereignty. If he wanted to walk the rest of his life thinking he had saved me, who am I to set the story straight? He said it himself every step of the rest of his life, he will have honor and purpose because he saved me. What that man taught me on the deck of that ship is something my father was never able to teach me about being a queen. It was not something I learned over 10 years of war. I learned that taking care of my people was what my sovereignty was all about. From that moment on, all my sovereignty became regency. Taking care of my people, allowing them the honor and dignity they need to walk every step the rest of their lives. That conversation with that man on that ship was my coronation. He practically put the crown on my head himself. To him, what he saw in my face was his queen, his goddess, the most beautiful woman in the world. And that's exactly how he delivered me to Egypt. Maura, thank you so much for taking us into this story of sovereignty and regency and divinity and humanity and the face of things and the embodiment 
of this woman and this queen and this goddess. It's such a treat to hear you weave all these pieces together. Thank you so much. It's fun to be in this space with you listening. For me, it's also the story of a a practical woman who's just trying to escape a city that's burning around her. And isn't that the thing? We're, We're getting through our life trying to survive. And sometimes along the way, we step in a little divinity or someone crowns us with something they need. And isn't that how we find uh, sometimes humility and sometimes grace? And Helen's life and really what made her quote unquote beautiful was that she realized that people saw in her what they needed to. And it's the beauties in the eye of the beholder in such a real way. Her father, who knew that she wasn't from his genetic line, he needed the favor of the gods. He needed Mount Olympus on his side. So raising Zeus's daughter and keeping her safe gave him that cachet. Her husband, Menelaus, needed her to be in power, that by marrying her, he became king. Paris needed Aphrodite's gift of of love and passion. And what this man saw in her was he needed her to be his queen and to give his life purpose. And I think she kind of started to realize that she was beautiful to people because they needed her to be, because it made their lives more meaningful. And when you realize that your face is a mirror that shows to someone else the best version of themselves, that's a powerful lesson. And she understands that that could be used. And she took her lessons of being a great storyteller from her mother, who uh, explained away her conception and took on that understanding of what people needed to find in her. And really part of the escape to Egypt was also that the known world hated her at the end of the Mm -hmm. Trojan War. She was a widow maker. She was an orphan maker. This was the, the biggest war of the ancient world and she needed to get the hell out of town. She was on full escape. It's hard for us to think about that because we think she was so, she goes on to be so famous and later on temples get built in her honor. So I sat there and thought, well, how did she reconcile all that to be someone who this whole war was her fault? That that's a story that gets told. It's like, all it's all the woman's fault and all the men were just doing the right thing for her. And wasn't she just a tart? And how fascinating is it, by the way, that there's so many tales told about the Trojan War, Virgil and being probably the most famous, but so many stories are told about the Trojan War, but none of them through Helen's eyes. This is the woman who supposedly caused the whole damn thing. She knows everybody on both sides. She's the only person who could live on the battlefield and knew everybody's name, who was their mother, who was their brother, their whole story, what village they're from. And yet, the whole story of those 10 years and everything that followed through the Odyssey, et cetera, is like they reference her, but no mm-hmm. one tells it from her perspective. And for storytellers like you and I, and the people that listen to your podcast, that's an opportunity. You go, oh, wow, yeah. wait, where was her voice in that? What would her voice be? And what was she thinking when she saw those ships rolling towards her? 
or what was she thinking when the city was burning all around her? That's really interesting. And her whole life of seeking sovereignty, my father's making the decisions for me. My husband's making the decisions for me. The generals of the war are making decisions for me and I'm locked in a city. She was always seeking sovereignty. And then the moment she kind of has it, she goes, oh, wait, what is that all for? Unless it's to help other people. And that transition to Regency for me was the next step in in my path as a storyteller that I went from the other stories I told to this and what was the medicine that happened through my understanding of this myth and this story. There's the boldness and also the deep truth in saying that no one told Helen's story because Helen was waiting for you. And she's waited for other storytellers, of course, but she was waiting for you. And that's even in the excerpt you shared with us, you talk about your conversations with Helen. And that is so vital to you as storyteller and sharing it. But I, I think I'll also be so bold to say you as woman and everything you were going through where you needed to hear her voice and she needed to use your voice and the relationship that the two of you built in the process. Yeah, it was a number of months. And just thinking about Helen and learning and just doing some some research and scholarship about her because it helped me understand my life better, my circumstance, and then deciding, I think there's something here. Maybe I should write some stories and maybe I should do a show and then getting a show together. And it was a beautiful healing path for me. This is how the conversation started. And my recollection of it was, I found myself at the foot of the goddess because I had fallen there. So I had fallen in love. I had fallen out of favor. I had fallen to pieces and I feel like I'm there on the floor, you know, and I sort of feel like maybe you've had these moments too. And you're down there where a goddess looks down at you and says, girl, someone has thrown you off your pedestal. <laughs> and I'm like, that's right, sister. <laughs> Don't I know it? And she's like, mm-hmm, I've been there. And then you kind of go, wait, well, what, what goddess is telling me she understands my life. She understands being down here. When Helen of Troy was about my age or around this time, she was in, on the Island of Rhodes, which is very remote, very far away from Sparta and Troy. And she probably fled there because she wasn't a super popular person. And once her husband died, there was no one to protect her. But whatever happens there at this age that I am, she reconciles with her stories and shares it. And her stories are told and retold in a way that she actually becomes legend. Temples start getting built to her there. People are revering her. People are on both sides of that war owning her, right? So she she really is Helen of Sparta, but she's called Helen of Troy. And it's the Trojan War, even though it's Spartans won. So in my telling of it, it's like she is like a spin doctor. She's like a PR, the first PR agency ever was, started at, at the Island of Rhodes in what I call the temple to her alibi. She's like, I'm going to build the temple to my alibi. I'm going to decide how the stories are told. I'm going to tell them the way I want them told. And I'm going to remember all of those heroes on both sides. And I want myself to be remembered. And I want to set the record straight. So I think spending enough time with her and finding that was there. And there were moments where I kind of stopped myself and thought, who the hell do I think I am? I am a storyteller who talks about mostly Irish folklore, people who I think are related to me in my lineage, whether that's 
a pirate captain or Mora Rua in her castle or people from the Emerald Isle. And all of a sudden I'm looking through canvassing Greek myth and canon for these lessons learned. And I, at one point thought this might be very different for me. And, and as I learned more about Helen and sort of had this conversation back and forth, I found it to have actually so many of the same threads that the other stories I like to tell a woman who seems disempowered and finds her power, a woman who's definitely looking for sovereignty. And then for me, the idea of like, oh, wait, it's not just to have the, your own choice and decisions, but then what are you doing with it? And who can you help? And what is it for if not to make a difference? And so that was growth for me that I wanted to share. And I'm happy to do that. Well, as you describe it as myth with a capital M, you know, it's something interesting where both you and I sharing that Irish lineage and really feeling that those roots into the land and into the culture and into ancestral connection. And of course, it's interesting how the Greek stories have become so ubiquitous. So many democracies have been built on those ideals that the stories kind of became a universal currency. And I'm now curious to really talk to folks from Greece and say, how do you feel about the ways in which your stories have become white canvases like their statues that can sort of be spread across the world and painted in different ways? So that's an interesting question I think I might investigate at some point. Well, can I just break in there a minute? Because this is how real the conversation between goddess and I, Helen and I felt. Tell us. I'm sitting there Maybe two months into this project, thinking, oh my gosh, she's Greek. You know, and later on in my story, I actually have this like, who the hell do I think I am part of the story? But because I lived this, and what happened was I met a marvelous Greek man putting a story together and fell in love with him. And it felt to me, because it, it was really right at that moment where I thought, oh my gosh, how can I tell a Greek myth? And I meet this amazing Greek man who makes me feel like the most beautiful woman in the world. And to me, it was Helen herself going, it's okay, Maura. You can hang out with the Greeks for as long as it makes you happy. You know, <laughs> take what you need of us and dig into it. And isn't that delicious? And I really honestly feel like it was a nod from her. It was a permission slip. It was whatever. And when I think about having landed at the foot of the goddess, having her hand these stories down to me to get me on my feet again. And that relationship of falling in love with this Greek man to put me on my feet again. And by the way, not needing to be on a pedestal because learning from Helen's story, being admired is not the same as being loved, being put on a pedestal, being apart, like I'm going to kneel down, my goddess, my goddess, my queen. What we really need is someone who's going to stand us up on our feet, stand next to us, and not just use our face or our body or whatever to see what they need to see in us, but truly love us for who we are. And that experience of being seen and loved and held is so grounding. And, and that's right. where I was, where I could put it on stage. Yes. Oh, Maura, thank you so much for introducing us to your Helen and to Helen in the capital H sense, in the capital M sense of mythology. I just love all the versions you bring together, the way you offer so much of yourself in this process. It's storytelling at its finest. So thank you so much for being part of this. 
Thank you for listening to Not Work Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at Knotwork Podcast and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future. <laughs>